Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. In 2016, the Business Roundtable, an organization of nearly 200 CEOs, changed its core statement on the purpose of a corporation. For two decades, it had said that companies should primarily strive to maximize shareholder returns. Its new statement, however, called on companies to deliver value to all stakeholders uh, uh, beyond uh, shareholders. Our next guest has a fascinating column out on this topic. Joe Nocera, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, is out with a fascinating column that's getting a lot of attention on Wall Street and beyond. Joe, talk to us about this concept here of stakeholders above and beyond, perhaps just shareholders, and how that whole discussion may be changing as a result of this pandemic. Wait, it's getting a lot of attention on Wall Street? Yes, sir. (laughs) Nice to know. So, Joe, I mean, it's just it's fascinating here. I mean, you know, again, we, we, you know, when I went to business school, it was all about maximizing shareholder returns. Shareholder value, maximize. Yep. Listen, I was in the room when the phrase was invented. <laughs> I, I was in the I was in the Waldorf Astoria in 1982, June, watching Boone Pickens try and take over his first uh, city services, first big takeover play. Yeah, that that was it. How's what's changing here, if anything? Well, you know, what's what's you got to remember, maximizing shareholder value has not always been, you know, the sine qua non of, of, of American business. It hasn't been. Um, you know, in, 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 in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, uh, 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 companies viewed themselves as having a, a wide range of constituents uh, of whom shareholders were one. Uh, I mean, I remember, well, I don't really remember, but GE had, uh, before Jack Welch, um, Reg, uh, Reg Jones, the CEO, you know, he was considered the, the most important CEO of his time. And in the 10 years he had the job, the stock went down 9%. And it was a different world. So, so yep. yeah, maximizing shareholder value, there was no question that more emphasis needed to be put on shareholders. No question at all. And there's no question that companies needed to you know, get leaner and meaner. There was a lot of fat. There was a lot of uh, sluggishness. And we were letting um, uh, rivals from abroad eat our lunch in autos and other, and other areas. But now the pendulum swung too far. And it got, uh, gave us Enron. And it gave us drug prices that, that, ne- that never stopped going up. And it gave us, you know, the Boeing 737 MAX, which is definitely directly related to wanting to keep the stock stock price high at Boeing, and so and, and then you have the pandemic where companies really uh, had to step up and think about their employees and think about the country and what they could do for the country, and that and that um, sentiment is kind of closer to what happened in the 60s and the 50s than it is to maximizing shareholder value. And the argument that I make in my column is that if you want to get rid of income inequality or reduce it and get back to a, co- a country that has good middle-class jobs and a sense for people that they can, they can do better in life than their parents or they can do well in life, you know, you just can't focus on shareholders. You have to, as a, you know, I, you have to think of other things, broader things. And I think what we've discovered 
over this time of this pandemic and even a little earlier is that a lot of corporate executives have come to understand that and have come to realize that you can't have a narrow slice of the country doing well and everybody else doing poorly. As I recall, this was a theme at Davos 2020 as well. It was uh, stakeholders for a cohesive and sustainable world. So it sounds like all of these organizations, Davos, the Business Roundtable, they're a little like the Supreme Court. They sort of go where the public mood needs them to go at some point. So, Joe, what happens now? How does, you know, David Solomon and Jamie Dimon and all of these people, you know, make that a reality? Or will it be up to these new regulators that we're hearing a lot about? Well, I, I don't really think uh, a lot of companies are going to do this completely on their own without some kind of prompting. Um, so, you know, I think it's up. I think Biden, I think this is something Joe Biden should talk about. But I also think it's something that uh, the administration can take some steps to create incentives. Um, it can create tax incentives for factories built in the U.S. or percentage of the workforce that stays in, that, that stays, uh, in the U.S. It can use the Defense Production Act to, um, uh, to force uh, a certain amount of manufacturing in the U.S. on national security grounds. For instance, you know, it was nuts that we had no N95 masks that except for 3M, everything else was made in China. Um, so that's another sort of thing you can do. Infrastructure, I think, could be huge because if they actually had an infrastructure program, you, they could set a wage for workers that would be very attractive and that companies would have to match if they wanted to keep their employees. Um, so, you know, I, 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 and by the way, the $15 minimum wage, I think, has the potential to be huge if that, if that becomes law. Joe, in your column, you talk, talk to us about a company named Demotech. What was the story there? Oh, uh, so Demotech is a, is a family, small family-owned company in Miami, and they make surgical supplies, sutures and things like that. So the pandemic comes along, and they realize there's a huge shortage of uh, PPE, personal protection equipment. And so they hire a bunch of people, 600 people, and they invest millions of dollars, and they kind of set up a PPE division. Um, uh, be, you know, yeah, they want to make money, but it was a lot of it. The motivation was to help the country because they could see in Miami and Florida and elsewhere, hospitals didn't have the stuff they needed. And um, once it got approval by the FDA, things went really well all summer long. But when I talked to the Demotech executives, they told me that already the buyers were starting, many of the buyers were starting to shift their buying back to China. And that's exactly the kind of thinking that is really destructive, you know, because what they're doing is they're sacrificing the security of having an American-made product for the, you know, the price, the, 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 the cheaper price they can get from China. That's exactly what it got us into this problem in the, in the first place. And so um, the guy from Denitech basically said, if, I don't, if the government doesn't get involved here, I'm not going to be able to stay in this business because I'm not going to have any customers left. And I think that's tragic, both in terms of the jobs that they created and also in terms of the national security implications that we have discovered during this pandemic. Who do you see taking a lead on this, Joe? I mean, will the likes of Jeff Bezos do something? I doubt, I doubt mm -hmm. it will be Jeff Bezos, but I think it could well, very well be Jamie Dimon. Hmm. Uh, he has talked uh, quite a bit about this, and he has... Um, uh, my buddy Andrew Sorkin had a column the other day in the Times and Deal Book about um, uh, a, a, 
a group that he has of thinkers who, who help him, who had put together a memo saying that if we don't solve inequality, you know, everything else, um, uh, everything else doesn't matter. This yeah. is what has to be done. And Jamie has made some very tough statements about, uh, you know, as a company, uh, CEOs have to start doing things that's not necessarily best in their best short-term interest. business interest, yeah. even if, if they help the country. Joe, thank you. Fabulous column. Biden has once-in-a-century chance to fix capitalism. Joe Nocera, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. I would urge everybody to have a read of this one. It is NFL Championship Playoff Weekend. In the first game, Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the Green Bay Packers. And in the second game, a David versus Goliath. We have the Buffalo Bills against the Kansas City Chiefs. It's getting That game's getting a little bit heated in the grocery aisles. Interesting story. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group, joins us here. Bert, what's going on in some of these uh, supermarket chains in Buffalo and beyond? Uh, Paul, Joe Dash, CEO of Legendary Four Generation uh, Dash's Markets Family, 97 years, is reversing the proverbial curse of the cookie, uh, number 34, <laughs> Cookie Gilchrist, and the curse of the fireman, number 12, uh, Daryl LaMonica, from uh, current Bills quarterbacks, uh, same area, uh, from Fresno, and uh, Gilchrist and LaMonica uh, were key in leading the Bills to their first and only championships, and they never got put on the wall of fame and uh, wound, wound up losing uh, January 1st, 67, at the Kansas City Chiefs for the first time, uh, first chance to get into the Super Bowl, and they've been trying to uh, beat Kansas City in a championship game since, and, and um, so the Dash families taking all the Kansas City Masterpiece barbecue sauce off the shelves of all the Dash's stores and replacing it with Guy Hughes's African-American locally owned and operated um, uh, black family of Hughes's uh, preservative-free, sh- uh, sugar-free, and gluten-free barbecue <laughs> sauce, which is outselling the Kansas City Masterpiece barbecue sauce. Are you on commission, Bert? <laughs> no, no, I, I just, 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 an, just an old entrepreneur, um, and uh, five generations of uh, coming out of foster farms and orphanages, uh, helping to start uh, the food food industry um, there, and, and hence with ten thousand uh, since uh, red and red and white IGA and Rexall drugstores that my ancestors uh, co-founded. Well, that is an amazing story. Love to hear all of that sometime. But Bert, it tells me that that Kansas City barbecue sauce must have been pretty good in the first place. If it was ever on those shows. Hey, it, it was good, um, Bonnie, uh, but it was Kraft combining with Heinz, combining with Buffett and 3G. And reportedly, uh, the ingredients and the quality wasn't as good as uh, what Joe Dash and his team noticed uh, with G. Hughes. And they always support um uh, minority and African American and, and United Nations of entrepreneurs on, mm. on the U.S. and Canadian border. So it was giving a great entrepreneur um, a chance. And as Paul said in the David Goliath versus Goliath story, G. Hughes' barbecue sauce uh, knocks off and is, is out, outselling the Kansas City Kraft uh, barbecue sauce uh, by a factor of a thousand percent. Wow. <laughs> All right, Bert. So again, it's a NFL playoff weekend, typically a big time for bars and restaurants as people watch the games. But of course, across much of the country, uh, that is not an option. What are we seeing from some of the grocers? Are they seeing their sales of, you know, chicken wings and, you know, sodas and beer? Are, are we seeing that really 
kick up here because there's nowhere else to go to watch the games? Uh, Paul, yes, uh, record-breaking sales uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Food retail was down 2% last uh, month. Dash is, is up over, over 20%, and, and every week is a record-breaking week, uh, bigger than any Thanksgiving week or Christmas Hanukkah week uh, they ever had. So like you said, uh, chicken wings, uh, beef on wick, all uh, what the Castellani uh, family uh, the co- co-founded Dashes calls hometown favorites. And uh, it's on the Bloomberg Terminal, uh, trailing 12 months, restaurant sales are down 24%. So Dashes is preparing meals in its commissaries and kitchens in the stores and delivering it to seniors or letting people uh, pick up curbside or get uh, chef-quality prepared meals from Dashes chefs. And Dashes is literally putting Amazon's new Whole Foods prototype store on Niagara Falls out of business and going toe-to-toe with all the big Goliaths uh, from Walmart to Target uh, to Costco to BJ's uh, to Wegmans to all all the all of which are doing extremely well. Uh, Bert, uh, we're out of time, but two quick questions. Who wins this weekend and who goes bankrupt more broadly in retail this year and quickly? Oh, uh, reverse the uh, curse of the cookie and Daryl LaMonica uh, bills went by a point. And uh, for retailers that uh, go bankrupt, uh, still worried about uh, Neiman Marcus not doing a boomerang bankruptcy um, and Neiman and Bergdorf uh, boomeranging uh, back into bankruptcy this year. Uh, Food, uh, drug and off-price retail record-breaking sales continue for the foreseeable future. Bert, fabulous. I love uh, the (laughs) broad range of things that you can speak of. Paul, do you agree with his call for the weekend? Uh, I hope so. It'd be a nice story to see uh, the Buffalo Bills kind of, I think it's been 27 years and uh, they've had a tough go, but got a great new young quarterback. But two good games this weekend and the big winners are the TV networks. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Record-breaking ratings. Exactly, for sure. Well, Bert Flickinger, as we don't have to really point out, is a Buffalo son. So thanks for joining us today, Bert. He is managing director, of course, as well at Strategic Resource Group. Don't often get to talk to him about sports, but uh, this was a great <laughs> opportunity. So thanks to Sam Lenga, our producer, for setting that one up. Bert is obviously a retail expert and talks to us generally about how retailers are doing. So I guess we'll set our, our timers to see what happens this weekend. Once again, existing home sales surprising to the upside in December. 7.6.76 million homes were sold. That was more than the 6.56 million economists were looking for. And the previous month was revised upwards as well. Let's bring in Logan Motoshami, housing data analyst and columnist for Housing Wire, just to give us a broad update on where we are housing-wise. Is there continued demand out there, Logan, for you know, suburban and exurban housing. Absolutely, you know, a lot of these, a lot of this hot data that we're seeing in existing home sales is actually just a makeup demand for the lost uh, months that we had uh, during COVID. And purchase application data has been positive year over year for about 38 weeks right now. So the story is going to continue. It's pretty much, you know, keep it simple. We have the U.S. has the best housing demographics ever. Mortgage rates are at the lowest levels ever. So housing demand will be stable for 2021. Uh, the only the only issue is how hot can home prices go uh, after you know having an extremely hot year last year going into 2021 with lower mortgage rates and the economy coming back. 
Logan, talk to us about supply. We, we you know, as, as you mentioned, the demand uh, dynamics seem to be in place uh, for the near and intermediate term. Talk to us about supply of, of homes. And this is a problem is with month with supply so low, all time lows uh, as of today, and some of that is just a function of you know inventory falls toward the end of the year. Unless mortgage rates go up higher, we can be in this very low inventory environment for all of 2021, which again, the problem is that home prices can deviate, you know, from what normally would have been the occurrence if there was a typical expansion or where, I mean, COVID has kept mortgage rates lower than it should be. So if the economy comes back, does higher mortgage rates bring more supply? That's what we want. We we don't want this kind of hot, hot home price growth year after year after year. And you know, I, I know a lot of people are thinking, well, people are just going to move around, work from home, and that'll bring more supply. The velocity of inventory only really comes when rates come a little bit higher. You know, typically demand gets better, inventories stay flat or go lower. So higher mortgage rates right now are the only thing that could help the inventory situation. Well, um, there's also those 9 million unemployed, Logan. I presume none of these are people buying homes. Majority of the people that were unemployed in this crisis were renters or people that would, you know, fall into the renter financial profile. Uh, Higher wage income uh, Americans didn't lose as many uh, jobs as that group did. So it didn't impact the housing data as much. We we froze as a country for, for about five or six months. Purchase application data were down big year over year, and then it stopped going down and just ran up uh, higher. We got a V-shaped recovery, and then we've been making up. I think that's the big thing that people should realize. This parabolic rise in existing home sales is all makeup demand. It'll eventually come back down to a normal trend, and that normal trend should not be looked at in a negative way. We ended the year about 5.64 million, so we still have this big deviation from monthly sales to where total sales trends are. So. Sales will come down slowly, and then we'll find a normal trend, and we'll take it from there. But again, the lowest mortgage rates ever, the best demographics ever can facilitate unhealthy price growth. We don't want that. We want the economy to recover. We want mortgage rates to go higher. It'll cool the market down. It'll bring balance back, because this is not a balanced market right now. Uh, Logan, talk to us about the mortgage market, the underwriting market, and and kind of, you know, are, are we... Are the mortgage writers, are they writing good mortgages? Talk to us about that, because that's where we got into some trouble, obviously, back in the, in the financial crisis. Post-2010, we've had the best loan profile uh, ever in U.S. history. Most of these loans are all fixed low debt cost loans with rising wages. So uh, this is one of the reasons why the housing market did so well. We didn't have any kind of exotic loan debt structures or anything that would facilitate unnecessary inventory to increase. And a part of that also is problematic because you're not going to get uh, um, uh, inventory to skyrocket anytime soon when demand is good. So uh, the the underwriting standards are perfect. They're, they're, that's, that's one area in the U.S. economy we don't have to worry about. The, the thing we have to do is always make sure not to ease lending standards to facilitate more home sales mm. for at-risk homeowners. And so far, there's nothing out there that would, that, that would require even that discussion. Logan, what happens if we get a major sell-off in equity markets? What happens to demand then? Well, a sell-off in equity markets means bond yields go down. 
mortgage rates will Yeah, but low. listen, mortgage rates are low. It's not the mortgage that's going to stop people. But what if their wealth gets, gets uh, you know, torn asunder in an equity market sell-off? Equity market sell-off in relationship to home would probably be the, the higher-end market. Maybe you don't get that two to three million home buyer. Uh, but outside of that, not really. It's just we have a lot of young people. Just to give some perspective, uh, ages 27 to 33 is about 32.5 million people. People need somewhere to live. As long as they're employed, even if the stock market fell 15, 20%, you know, we've had corrections all through the longest economic expansion ever in the last one. It, home sales just moved along. So uh, a, a big equity sell-off might impact maybe the higher end markets in New York and California or Miami or Connecticut, mm. but that's not, that, it, it just doesn't have that kind of velocity if employment levels are high or mortgage rates are so low. It just certain marketplaces uh, w- would be impacted. Uh, Logan, talk to us about the construction of uh, housing for kind of that first time buyer. We've heard in the past that that kind of inventory was just not being created. Well, one thing that's been positive uh, uh, in, in housing is that after 2014, when the when the when the builders and new home sales had a, had a really big uh, a sales myth, uh, builders have been building smaller homes, and the question is now is does that continue or is this theme of well people want bigger homes because they want an extra room for their you know for their for their family members or for their office? We'll see how that goes, but that has actually been a real good positive for this country that builders started to incorporate smaller homes into the mix, which means they could compete with the existing home sales market, which is much bigger, provides a cheaper home, and has a geographic advantage over the new home sales market. So that trend hopefully continues uh, uh, for 2021 and and many years out because they were just building bigger and bigger homes and and they they got the memo after 2014. (laughs) Got it. Hey, Logan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Logan uh, Moltashami, housing data analyst, also a columnist for the Housing Wire based in Irvine, California, giving us uh, some more color, Vani, on what has been a real bright spot in the U.S. economy, that being housing. For sure, and it's definitely helped keep things afloat. Uh, you have to wonder about uh, about urban housing, yep. Paul. Does that come back at some point, and, and if so, when? Yeah, exactly right. So there's been that migration uh, out of some, some urban centers into the uh, suburbia. It's been an interesting uh, issue to follow. Time of the week to bring in our Lawrence Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate talking to you on this weekly segment. Uh, I guess what's new here is, I guess, the reemergence, if you will, of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. What does that mean to the folks, do you think, in the healthcare industry? I think it it starts a sort of with a breath of relief and um, a reminder that we're going to get back to the hard work of using um, and creating science to really come combat this pandemic. It's a place that we sort of in the response space haven't felt comfortable in for a long time. Um, and I, I think I can speak for many, if not all of my colleagues, to say that it was really great to see him sort of not mince words to get up there and say that there that, you know, he he's excited to be able to say that if he doesn't know something, he doesn't know something and um, that there's going to be a change in how we approach science with this new administration. Yeah, absolutely not mincing his words. I want to point to a story that has just emerged and it's about Wall Street leaders, Lauren, 
making the case to allow them be part of the vaccine distribution, particularly in New York City, but also maybe beyond New York City. It, definitely New York State. Goldman, JP Morgan, KKR among firms on the call with the state asking if they can if they can provide distribution and logistics. Is this wise? I mean, it's obviously in these companies' uh, interests to, to try to do this, but uh, I mean, is it the best way to go or, or is it is it maybe getting into some dangerous territory? I think one of the things that we have to do is be careful that we don't, um, you know, throw too many different types of options into how we do vaccine rollout. Um, We have clear and um, official recommendations from ACIP on who should get vaccine, when, and um, what the priority groups are. I think um, the administration does see a plan forward to accelerate vaccine distribution, and um, that includes both um, upticks in in manufacturing and infrastructure and things like that, but also in um, public messaging around vaccine. And so uh, I think the logistics and the sort of uh, quality improvement side would be really valuable. But I also think that um, we have to be careful that we don't just continually change the plan right as new plans are getting started and and starting to streamline. Because there's going to always be that pain when a new plan is implemented um, of the learning curve and getting it in place and getting the infrastructure around it. Um, But we can't switch the plan every time we don't see that immediate uptick in speed. So we, we really have to um, give the, the new strategy the opportunity to play out and, and um, get vaccine into the arms of the people. Lauren, uh, uh, rightfully so, the vaccines are, seem to be front uh, and center on people's, in people's minds. Uh, talk to us, though, about therapeutics, treating people that are in hospital with uh, the virus. Where are we now? How, are we, how is it different from, say, you know, almost a year ago? Um, I think this is a place that we. Sounds like we might have lost Lauren. If she's there, she can uh, absolutely chime in again. But a very interesting uh, conversation there, Paul. Just as we see that Italy's numbers have begun to drop after five weeks of gains and the R8 is below one again. So that is a little bit of a good sign, at least for some countries. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as I was asking uh, Lauren Sauer about the therapeutics, you know, presumably they've made some uh, enhancements there and and maybe that will factor through in uh, in some of the uh, statistics as we see going forward here. So um, uh, but I think we have Lauren back. So, Lauren, I was asking about therapeutics, kind of where are we now versus when we started this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a place where we would have liked to see um, improvements a little further along, um, some more options in our toolkit, so to speak. Um, the, you know, remdesivir, some of the steroid options that we have are, are promising. And I do think our standard of care has improved significantly in the ability to effectively care for to manage these types of patients. I think one thing we would like to see um, is some more work in the repurposed drug space and that that careful randomized control trial design. We learned a lot from um, some of the trials coming out of the UK, but we would like to see those drugs implemented into a true uh, placebo-controlled RCT so we can better understand them. I think this is a space where we're going to continue to do a lot of work, but it is going to be, um, it's going to be a long haul. I mean, we, important for the study design, we still have a lot of COVID patients, but I think the hope is that as the patients decline um, with the vaccine, that we'll have fewer patients enrolling in studies, which um, is great for the patient population, but not so great for the study design of yeah. these therapeutics. So it's going to be a drag. 
Briefly, Lauren, the Biden administration came in and said it was going to be a priority and, you know, that it was going to overhaul the way it, it, vaccine distribution and so on had been been being done. Are there countries that are doing it better, though? Can you point to examples? Um, I think there are countries that are doing a really good job here. I think Israel has been an example that's been held up a lot um, as really being successful in this space. I think one of the challenges in the U.S. is that we don't have a nationalized health system, which some of the other countries that have been able to do this better um, really can leverage, right? Mm. Because they have one electronic health record. They have a system that can move patients more um, efficiently. And then they can leverage things like um, the, their military or their versions of nas- National yes. Guard to to really broadly um, have a systematic approach yep. that, that affects the entire health system. Lauren, thank you so much. As always, Lauren Sauer of Johns Hopkins. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.